Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Let's continue on. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is God's Word. Amen. Thank you, Kenny. Good morning, everybody. I am uh, excited to be here. You guys excited for Advent season? Yeah, Christmas season. Um, I was watching a version of Christmas Carol the other night, and I got to thinking, what is Scrooge's deal? Like, he's such a jerk, right? Like, how did he get that way? When I start thinking about Scrooge McDuck, which is the version I watched. Just, just kidding. You remember the story, right? A Christmas Carol, the three ghosts come to him, the ghost of Christmas past and present and future, and they show him his life. And as he's walking through, you start to, you start to see that Scrooge wasn't always that way. You remember that? You start to see that as as he's going through life, there was a time where he was a little more merry. He, he had relationships, but he started becoming more and more, as, as time went on, subtly, slowly, he started changing. He started moving more away from his relationships and spending more and more time at the office and accumulating his riches and finding his identity and his wealth and accomplishments. And I think the word that best describes Scrooge is more, more money, more power, more security. And um, I was thinking about that, and I, I thought, man, he got so fixated on certain aspects of his life that he just grew completely cold to the needs of others around him. And I realized that that story, it's a story of grace. It's a story that all of us need this Advent season as we're kind of wrapping up this countercultural series we've been in. So this would be kind of the last sermon in that and transitioning toward this Christmas season, I realized that we need to move, just like Scrooge, from death to life, from greed to generosity, and from guilt 
to grace. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I, I want this sermon to take us on a similar journey that we saw in the life of Scrooge. Because like Scrooge, I don't know about you, but tiny shifts can start to happen in our lives. It's almost as if we get saved by grace, our hearts are made alive by Christ, and we're just like, man, God is so good. And then all of a sudden, we start to get more and more distracted. We start to grow more and more cold and callous to the needs around us. And before you know it, we've built these walls around our heart. And it's like we take God's grace and we relegate it to certain areas of our life, but we have these walls up in other areas that God's grace doesn't really impact or affect anymore. We have these blind spots. How many of you guys see your blind spots? Nobody, right? Because you don't know you, don't know you have them. That's the whole point. And so today what I'm hoping we can do is walk through this passage of scripture and hold up the word of God like a mirror. Would you, would you enter into that with me and say, hey God, if I've got some blind spots, I really want to see them. You guys, you, will you join me in that journey? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's dive in. Thank you for being brave enough. Here, we're going to talk today about the good news and how it's not only good news for every area of our lives, but for every area of society. As Isaiah said in this passage we just read, the gospel is good news for the poor. And this text we just read is a famous text. In fact, Isaiah 61 is the first sermon that Jesus ever preaches. So if you're Jesus and you're starting your ministry out and you can pick from any of the Old Testament passages to really build your platform on and really share what your ministry is all going to be about, what would you choose? This is, this is what he chooses, right? And it's because where it says, um, by the way, he did that in Luke 4. It says in Isaiah 61, the Lord has anointed me. And that's the word for Messiah. Do you guys know what Messiah means? anointed one, right? And so this is a word representing Jesus. And when Jesus reads this, he's saying, hey guys, this is what I'm about. The Lord has anointed me and this is the essence of my mission. I've come with good news for the poor. What's that mean? Well, this passage gives us kind of a summary. And if you ask like yourself, why should we as Christians be passionately involved with the poor, there's three answers, and we're going to walk through those. The first two we're going to walk through rather quickly, and then the third one we'll spend a little more time on. But the three reasons why every believer in the gospel should be fully involved with the life of the poor is because of the future, the past, and the present. The future, the present, and the past. Or the past, present, future, whatever order. But we're going to start with the future, okay? So we see in chapter 61, verse 1, In verse 2, let's look at the text. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me or we'll have it on the screen. Chapter 61, verse 1, Jesus says, As the Messiah, I am anointed to come and and do what? In verse 2, he says, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that's a reference to Leviticus 25. See, back in Leviticus, there's this fascinating law that was part of the Mosaic law code of Israel. And this law basically said that every 50 years, all the debts will be forgiven, all the slaves will be freed, and all the land is going to go back to its original allotments. See, because when Israel had come out of Egypt and into the promised land, God said, hey, this is what I want you to do. We're going to divide the land up between the tribes and the clans and the families, and everybody's going to get an equal amount of land. But through time, some people do better And some people do worse. Some people have better circumstances, make better choices. Others don't. 
And so what ends up happening? Ends up not being as equal. The land starts getting, um, certain people have more land, other people have to sell their land in order to survive. But every 50 years, it was supposed to reset, supposed to start over and go back, no matter what. One Bible scholar puts it like this. He says, each person or family had a chance at least once in their lifetime to start afresh, no matter how irresponsibly they'd handled their finances or how far into debt they'd fallen. That's, that's grace. That's awesome. Can you imagine if Americans were told that? That'd be crazy. <laughs> yeah. Some people are like, yeah. And others are like, nah, man, I'm doing great right now. Don't, I don't want to share the wealth. Right? And the reason why God did that is to say something to the Israelites. He says, guys, remember something. I own the land. Right? All the stuff that you have is from me. I'm the author of your wealth. Every, everything you have is a gift of my grace. You were slaves in Egypt. You had nothing. And I brought you out and I've placed all of this into your hands. But ultimately, all of it is whose? God's. Cool. Yeah, just keep feeding back. That's awesome. And, and the cool thing is, he doesn't just say, all that's yours is mine. But because it's a covenant relationship, he also says what? All that I have is yours, right? But I don't want you to have a slavery mentality anymore. You're my children. I want, I want you to have permanent restoration. I don't want any permanent poverty in the promised land. That's what God says. So this law of Jubilee, it's a fascinating law, but look carefully here. When the Messiah comes and he proclaims this, according to Isaiah, he says, I proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's not just a year, it's not just one of the years that comes around every 50 years, but it's the year, the Jubilee. What's that mean? Well, it's talking about this. Let's look at the description in verse one of the year Jubilee. I'm gonna release the prisoners from darkness. I'm gonna proclaim freedom for the captives. I'm gonna bind up the brokenhearted and I'm gonna preach the good news to the poor. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse two and verse three. I'm gonna get rid of all mourning. I'm going to get rid of all grief. I'm going to get rid of all sorrow. Now, what's that talking about? When you look around the world, even if Jubilee, even if your debts were forgiven, would that get rid of all sorrow and all grief and all mourning? No, so it's not just talking about a present reality. It's talking about a future reality that God is going to provide, that, that the Messiah is going to come and usher in. That someday, the new heavens and the new earth, this, this like physical world is going to be wiped clean of all the problems and the flaws and the blemishes and the poverty and the injustice and the, the racism and all the hunger, all the disease, all the famine, all the suffering, all the death will be gone forever. That's the future. That's not just like some hope that we talk about. That's, that's a future that Christ purchased with his own blood. That's a, that's a certain future that we're, we're hoping in. So what's that mean? What are the implications of that for us? Well, one, if God invented both your body and your soul, okay, so if he's going to redeem both your body and soul, and that's what the resurrection is all about, not disembodied spirits fluttering up into the clouds, but it's actually bodily resurrection. That's why Romans 8 says we're longing for the redemption of our bodies, right? So Christ is going to come back. He's going to resurrect those who are in him. In that resurrection, if he invented both your body and soul, he's going to redeem them both, He's not just going to heal all the spiritual darkness in the world, but he's going to heal the physical darkness and the physical brokenness 
then that has to be reflected in our lives as believers, right? So if you're a believer and you believe that that's what God at infinite cost to himself is going for, the end of disease and poverty and hunger and sickness, then what that means is if we believe in that future, we should be healing the sick whenever possible. And we should be feeding the hungry whenever possible. It's our way of showing that we believe in that future reality. In other words, we have to reflect that somehow in our lives. And that's what we spent this whole last series talking about, this being a new humanity, being a counter-cultural movement. Does that make sense? So the first reason why we care about the poor, care about injustice and sickness and all of that is the future, but that's, that's only point one. Point two is we, we care about the poor because of the present. Let's look at verses six and seven. In verse six, it says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? And we're gonna talk about fasting in a minute, okay? Let's just table that. And let's, let's see what he's talking about. When it says, to loose the chains of injustice and to set the oppressed free, what does that mean? God says, I want you to loose the chains of injustice and to set the oppressed free. What's that mean? Well, he describes it in verse seven. Right? He says in verse seven, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter to clothe him? So verse six says, I want you to do justice. And verse seven says, and this is what it means, I want you to pour yourself out for the poor, for the needy, for the hungry, for the naked, for the homeless. In fact, down in verse 10, it says, you are to spend yourselves. Spend yourselves. Not just your money, but you're being called to pour out of every aspect of who you are and what your life represents for the poor. So not just your financial capital, but your physical capital and your intellectual capital, and your spiritual, and your relational capital, every aspect of your life, you're called, your time, energy, and effort to pour out of yourself for the poor, the hungry, the naked, and the homeless. And a lot of people don't like this. In fact, a lot of people look at verses 6 and verse 7, and they keep them separate. They say, verse 6 is talking about justice, verse 7 is talking about charity. And we love that word charity, don't we? Because charity is one of those things that you do when you feel like it. It's not obligatory. I don't have to do charity. I'd rather use that word, right? Maybe you want to be charitable and maybe not. You should be charitable, you know? Give something to the poor, but justice is not an option, right? So if verse 6 is describing verse 7, and God is saying, if you don't feed the hungry, you're being unjust. A lot of people say, mm, nope. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't owe the poor anything. If I want to give it to them, fine, but I don't owe them anything. It's, it's not unjust. Maybe it's uncharitable, but it's not unjust. Don't put that on me. And that doesn't work. And here's why. Here's why that argument doesn't hold up. Look at the last clause of verse seven. It says, share your food with the hungry, Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe him. And do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Ah, what does that mean? What does flesh and blood mean? What do you think of when you hear that, that term? Flesh and blood. Children. Children, 
family, people that you have a relationship with, right? But it's connected to this phrase, poor wanderer. In other words, poor wanderer here is described as your own flesh and blood. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the poor wanderer. Do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And what God is saying is that the poor wanderer is your own flesh and blood. And poor wanderer means an impoverished person of another race. Oftentimes that word is translated elsewhere, alien, foreigner, stranger. It's an impoverished person of another race. So God is saying, if you don't feed the hungry, you're being unjust. And when you turn away from a poor person in your city of another race, it's like turning away from your own flesh and blood. Now, why would he say that? In fact, it was even more outrageous to say that in a patriarchal society, right? It's like, because in many ancient societies, they're patriarchal, and family means everything. Flesh and blood means everything. So to say that the poor person from another race is my flesh and blood, that's crazy talk, God. Come on. What are you saying? But what's God saying? He's saying that every human being is in the image of God. If you understand that I created all human beings and they're all in my image and therefore to turn away from them, it's as if you're turning away from your own flesh and blood. In fact, you are turning away from your own flesh and blood. Therefore, you're responsible for their needs. To not, to, to turn away from your own flesh and blood is wrong, right? Would you, would you guys just like ignore your kids if they were hungry? I mean, more than 20 minutes. <laughs> you're like, ah! <laughs> it's not just uncharitable it's unjust it's wrong and that's a pretty strong argument right that's heavy and it's tied to what we've been talking about for several weeks that we're called to be a counter-cultural community that thinks about this stuff differently and cares about those whom society has left behind we're called to be a new humanity we're called to be a new city within the surrounding city that shows the world what our god is like through our life together but most people in our culture, in fact, I would say even most Christians would say, wait, I worked hard for this. It's mine, right? Like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. In fact, let's reenact that part right now. Let's go. Mine, mine. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and sure, yeah, okay, if you have this much, to some degree, you work for it, of course, right? But only to some degree, not to the main degree. Because think about the reason that you have anything is not just that you worked for it. There's other variables, aren't there? Like You were born in this century instead of the sixth century. What country were you born in? Right? You were born with a talent that God placed in you. You were born with a health that God saw fit to grant you. You were born with all these things. Without them, think about where you'd be. What am I saying? I'm saying that everything we have is a gift. God. God determined, the Bible says, the times and places where people would live. God gifted you with your personality and your family. God gifted you with talents and abilities. He gave you life and wisdom and strength and abilities and the, even the ability to gain the wealth you have. That's what God says to the children of Israel. He's talking to them when they're, he's first giving them the law about generosity and about taking care of those who are needy among them. And he says this in Deuteronomy 8. He says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me, which would be awkward um, if you were a woman talking like that. But, um, 
But we all, I think, at times have said that to ourselves. Uh, But remember, he says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce the wealth you have. Everything you have is a gift from God. And so if you act as if it's yours, and how you'll use it is completely up to you, you're not living in reality. If you act as if it's yours and it shows you do not understand your real relationship to God or your real relationship to the rest of the human race. You, what you have is a gift from God. What the human race is, is people who are made in the same image of God that you're made in. They're infinitely precious. And what that means is if you're unkind to the poor, you don't understand the actual relationship you have to God or to other people. So whether you acknowledge it or not, you're being unjust. Therefore, we can say first that we should take care of the poor because of our future hope. Second, we should take care of the poor because of our present relationship to God and one another. And I'm not going to stop there. And here's why. Because here's what the message has been so far. Feel guilty. (laughs) Feel guilty. Feel guilty. You have more. They have less. Feel guilty. God's bringing a future reality. It's going to be amazing. You should live like that now. Feel guilty. It's crushing, right? Thank God we don't have to stop there, okay? Because at the end of the day, I think we know this, guilt won't work in the long run. I found that. Like, guilt works for a time. Like, you might go out from this service and go donate to a charity or hand somebody your leftovers, but a month from now, guilt's not still going to be working on your heart. Guilt's not going to change you. It's just going to crush you. And so we need something else to actually change our hearts. And that's the third reason, not the future, not the present, but the past, the past, the grace of the atoning sacrifice. And if you understand the atoning sacrifice, if you understand what's been done for you, you'll want to be involved with the poor. In fact, more than that, it'll change your very understanding of the poor. At this very beginning of this text, it says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? What's that about? Well, the first part of the text, we're gonna go back and read it, we didn't read it earlier, is actually Israel complaining. They're complaining to God and they're like, hey God, we're fasting and we're praying and you're not answering our prayers, you're not showing up. Ooh wee, what up with that, right? And so God responds and God kind of caricatures what they're saying. I love what, I love what God says. He says, uh, let's look back at, I think it's verse three. Why have we fasted, they say, and have not seen it? You have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Then God says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. And let's just skip down to verse five. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And he goes on to verse six. No, this is the fast I've chosen. Okay? And what's that all about? He's talking about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. See, one day of the year, the Israelites would come together for a blood sacrifice to atone for their sins. That's what Yom Kippur means, day of atonement. And it was really a way for God to say, even though the Israelites have been trying hard to live the good life, even though the Israelites have been trying hard to walk righteously and not sin all year long, they've been trying to obey the Ten Commandments and obey God's law, every year they're gonna look back and realize they failed miserably, right? So Yom Kippur was God's way of saying, there is no way anyone can have relationship with me through their moral excellence. 
The only way anybody can be in relationship with me is through atonement, through forgiveness, through grace. So on the day of Yom Kippur, in order to show they understood that God was a God of grace, the Israelites would fast. And why would they fast? They fasted because fasting is a way of humbling yourself, denying yourself. It's a way of saying, I realize I'm a sinner saved by grace, so I'll act humbly. But God noticed something when the Israelites were fasting. He said, even though they would fast and deny themselves food, they continued to exploit their employees by not paying them well. And what God is saying here is he's saying, you don't, you don't understand what kind of fasting I want. Which is another way of saying, you don't understand the kind of life I want to result from the knowledge that you're saved by grace. That you're saved by grace only because of the atoning sacrifice. He says, if you see the kind of life that should come from grace, here's the fasting I want. Spend yourselves for the poor. Pour yourselves out for the poor. Don't just give up sweets for Lent, right? He says, give up living at this level because you're pouring out of your life and you're being generous to the poor. Pour out your whole life. That's the kind of life that should come from the knowledge of grace. Are we tracking? God's saying, he's saying, like, if you really understood blood sacrifice, if you really understood my grace and you saw the hungry, you couldn't help yourself but feed them. If you saw the naked, you couldn't help yourself but clothe them. If you saw the homeless, you would shelter them. That's what God is saying. If you're not caring for them, it shows you don't understand my grace. Now, let's be understanding to the Israelites, right? Because I think when they thought of atonement, when they thought of um, Yom Kippur, to what degree do you think they were actually able to realize what that pointed to? Sure, they understood that the only basis they had with a relationship with God was on grace and a sacrifice was needed. But they had no idea what that was pointing to. But we do here today, don't we? You know what that means? It means we have even less excuse. Centuries later, Jesus, in one of the most blood-curdling, amazing parts of his teaching, one we mentioned last week, Matthew 25, he, he took Isaiah 58 and he reworks it. And you remember what Isaiah 58 is saying? It's, it's God is saying, you say you know I've atoned for your sin. You say you know about blood sacrifice. You say you're saved by grace. But if you see the homeless, if you see the naked, if you see the hungry and you don't really do anything about it, it proves you don't really know, right? By the way, God's, let's just be very clear about something. God is not saying if you wanna be saved, you have to help the poor. We covered that last week. I just wanna tap on that really quick and remind you. No, he's not saying that. He's saying if you're saved, you will help the poor. It's very different. So in Matthew 25, listen to what Jesus does. He takes Isaiah 58, almost verbatim, and he just like twists it and turns it and changes it around. Listen to this. On judgment day, I'll look at some of the people and say, depart from me, you curse it into eternal fire. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying the same exact thing God said back in Isaiah. If you know me, if you know my love, if you know what I've done for you, then when you see the poor, 
you'll love the poor. If you don't love the poor, it shows you don't really love me. You don't understand my love at all. So he's not saying, if you care for the poor, then you'll be saved. He's saying, here's how you know you're saved. You care for the poor. And again, I know it's like, hey, wait a minute. How could that be? All right, let's, let's think about that for a minute. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, do you know what that means? It means that unless you're poor in spirit, you're not gonna be blessed. Unless you realize that you have spiritual poverty, you've declared spiritual bankruptcy, you're not gonna be blessed. I'll put it this way. Do you know right now that you are spiritually and morally bankrupt before God? Do you, do you really believe that? I know we're going heavy today, right? Do you really believe that? I'll put it another way. Seriously consider this. If you were gonna stand before God right now in your life and you were gonna be, would you be willing to admit that there's absolutely nothing you've done? You've never loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've never loved your neighbor fully as yourself. You've never totally done all these good works with perfect motivations. Like, could you stand before him and say, you know what, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing that I could say, hey, on the basis of this thing I did, you should accept me. You're morally and spiritually bankrupt. Do you believe that? Do you believe the only possible way you could have a relationship with God or any hope is through the generosity of God? Because if you believe that, then you're spiritually poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. You've declared bankruptcy. The Bible says the only way to be saved is through the bleeding charity of God. Bleeding charity, that's, that's the cross, right? And the only way to receive that charity is to be humble enough to ask for it. So if you're too proud to ask for charity, you'll, do you ever get it? No, of course not. So what Jesus is saying is only the poor in spirit are the ones that are saved. And that's what he said. He came to declare liberation for the spiritually poor. Only the spiritually poor can receive his salvation. So if you've become spiritually poor and you receive Jesus' salvation, in other words, you've believed the gospel, that'll completely change the way you see materially poor people. Right? If you realize you're spiritually poor, it'll completely change the way you see materially poor people. You can never look down on them. You can never be ungenerous to them or condescending or say, hey man, come on. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I did, because he didn't spiritually, right? You're undeserving. You can never say, you're undeserving. You can never say, hey, you got yourself into that situation. You made your bed, now go lie in it. You can't say that. Because so did you, spiritually speaking. And yet God gener generously saved you. His generosity saved you. And what's that mean? It means if you're truly poor in spirit, you will love the materially poor. And when you look at them, you'll feel like you're looking in a mirror. And you realize that this is what you looked like to God and I looked like to God, and yet he gave everything to help you. Okay, so maybe you don't believe that. Let me ask you this. Is there anybody in here that if you were to appear before God right now, you would believe that he owed you? No. It's like, hey, God, I've, I've lived a pretty good life so far, but I haven't really gotten enough good in return. I've done a lot of good stuff, I mean, compared to other people, you know, so why am I in this position right now? I think you owe me, buddy. Anybody? 
No. There's probably two or three people that are like, I kind of want to raise my hand, but... (laughs) If you would somehow say that to God, well, you're not poor in spirit. You're more like middle class in spirit, I think. (laughs) You know what you're feeling like? You know, you're feeling like, hey, spiritually speaking, I've paid my taxes. I have my rights. You have to listen to me, God. So you're middle class in spirit. But if you're middle class in spirit, Jesus says you'll be indifferent to the struggle of the materially poor because you will actually believe you were good enough. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Therefore, you can go to somebody else and say, hey, get your stuff together, man. Don't you see what Jesus is saying? Here's how you know whether you're a sinner saved by grace or just a Pharisee. You'll love the materially poor. If you're spiritually poor, You'll love the materially poor. And the problem is that a lot of us in America have that middle class spirit. I know I struggle with it. I live in downtown. Living downtown, I get hit up 20 times a day for a handout. It's really easy to start growing cold and callous and just walking past people and not even responding. I've gotten so used at times to saying, I don't have any cash on me, that I get in my car and realize I did have cash on me And I realized I lied to that dude, but I'm not going to get back out of my car and go give him any cash, right? Anybody? Am I the only one? (laughs) It's amazing how quickly and subtly we can grow distant from grace and calloused in our hearts. Uh, I'll tell you a story just by way of confession. We... um, we had a business called Aware we had started. And um, it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And we, we really wanted to see uh, the city change. And so we were trying to raise funds for nonprofits through recycling, started going around, collecting recycling from nightclubs and such. And eventually, we ended up opening downtown's first recycling center. And things were going well. This was going to be a way for us to do a lot of good and yet provide for our families in the city. And man, we had so much hope for this. And the first year of that recycling center, we had 16 homeless people that we helped get off the streets by employing them. And man, it was just like this golden opportunity. But at the end of the day, to make a long story short, it was also kind of an eyesore for downtown because there were so many kind of homeless people that were congregating and bringing their recycling in that everybody was like, no, not here, get it out of here, move it over there. And eventually we, we got tired of the fight and we ended up closing it down. But I remember, I remember um, after that happened, it was, it was a little while where I started, when I'd walk down the street, I'd see former clients of Aware you know, uh, this guy or that guy. And I, I noticed I started kind of like lowering my head or, or crossing the street or turning around and walking the other way because I just didn't want to interface with them. And um, I remember was a couple years back, I met Romero over at Halcyon. And dude, I'm, gonna cry. I'm just letting you know I'm going to cry on this one. So just be prepared. <laughs> um, and I was like, um, dude, I never get over this part of the city anymore. He said, why not? I said, well, it's over by the bottoms and it's a lot of homeless. A lot of my old clients are over here and I just don't come over here. And he said, why not? I, I don't know. I just, I don't want to see him. Why not? So Romero, the gentle shepherd of my soul, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, realized, I, I realized that there was, there was a bitterness in me. Um, because I'd, I'd wanted to do something for God. I'd wanted to build something that would really make a difference. 
And I wanted to see those people actually changed, right? But none of them really seemed to like get saved and start going to church or anything. And even though we got them out of poverty, they didn't like bear any real spiritual fruit. And, and then aware just disappeared. It's like five years of my life just gone into the dust. I remember like thinking at one point when we were talking, I was, man, my attitude is, God, I did all this for you. And what do I have to show for it? Poured myself out for people. And I've got nothing. I mean, we didn't make any, we lost a lot of money, lost a lot of time. But, oh, what, what was that all about? It was a waste. And um, I remember feeling like God owed me. And like all those people who I'd poured my life out for, they owed me too. Like everybody owed me. I, I poured my life out for what? And my heart had just started growing cold and calloused. And when people would ask for money, I'd just walk past with no response. And it's a horrible place to be, by the way. Don't ever get there. But I don't, I don't think I even realized I was there. It's one of those blind spots we're talking about. Until that day showed up at, at Halcyon and Romero listened and shepherded my heart. And that day we ended up taking a walk through the bottoms. Uh, I'll never forget. And um, it's the first time I'd hung out over there in a long time and saw some of my former clients and uh, just started saying, God, what is going on in my heart? And I'll never forget one of the guys I saw, Phil Radabolt. Phil was uh, a guy that we had helped he and his wife get out of poverty, get a, get a place. And he'd actually become a foreman. We all know him, like a bunch of people in the church. And Phil is this big gregarious guy um, with like three teeth, you know what I mean? He was just like, he'd laugh and he did not care, man. He was not ashamed of anything. And uh, when I saw Phil, he, lo- he looked like he had lost like 150 pounds. And I was like, Phil, what's going on? He's like, hey man, yeah, it told me I have cancer. <laughs> Hold it together. All right, cool. <laughs> told me I have cancer and I'm like, oh. What, what am I doing with my life? How did I let myself get so cold, so bitter, so distant? And I realized as I was looking in Phil's eyes, it was like looking in a mirror, and I realized his material poverty was really just an image of my spiritual poverty that I was standing in in that moment. Distant from God, feeling like he owed me, damming up all the walls of grace in my life, I'll never forget, I gave Phil, like, just a hug, you know what, giant hug, tears rolling down my face, and I felt the grace of God warming my heart, and I felt like the, the, the walls breaking down, and the, and the warmth of God's love just rushing into my heart, and I remember weeping and having a transformed heart in that moment, but it was all because I realized God didn't owe me anything, and everything I had was a gift from him. And I am just as broken and poor as Phil is spiritually, yet I stand here feeling like everybody owes me something. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. This middle-class spirit is pretty deadly. So it's like, how can we escape that? And here's the good news today. You really need to look deeply at what Jesus did. And here's, here's what Jesus did. Jesus don't say to Jesus on the last day, hey, Lord, when did we see you naked? He's going to say, are, are you kidding me? They were gambling for my clothes at the foot of the cross. And don't say to Jesus, when did, when did we see you thirsty? He's going to say, are, are you kidding me? I cried out from the cross, I thirst. 
Hey, Lord, when do we see you in prison? And he's going to say, are, are you joking? <laughs> I, who didn't deserve any condemnation, poured out my life and, and, and my acceptance on you who deserve condemnation, and now you're accepted by grace. When you see Jesus becoming poor for you, powerless for you, marginalized for you, when you see Jesus becoming poor for you, you'll never look at the poor the same. Never. I mean, if Jesus loves us so much as to become poor, as to become a victim of injustice, to become powerless, then we have to love the poor and the powerless the way he did. Amen? Amen. Let me close like this. Um, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he writes, to the degree that you grasp the grace of God, money will have no dominion on you. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. What we've discussed today is it's an incredibly strong truth, right? And that not guilt, but that the grace of God and that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich, right? If you understand that at all, it radically changes your way of looking at poor people. It gives you a passionate, loving desire to do something for them the way Jesus Christ did for you. And that's not guilt, guys. That's grace. And one of my questions is this, because actually, I'm going to take a little pressure off you guys. Um, We've established a couple things. We've established that we're sinners saved by grace and that we know we're spiritually poor by loving the materially poor. And yet I happen to know, as you might, that there are a lot of Christians in America that would say, yes, I have been saved by grace, not through works, but yet they're still not pouring out themselves for the poor. They might give a little money, but they're not giving themselves to the poor. So where is the disconnect? I want to take a little pressure off of you guys. Um, It's our fault. We ministers, I think. I hope you appreciate what I'm doing for you right now. (laughs) I'll tell you why. I I believe it in the heart of every believer is a, is a grace button. And that when that gets pushed, when, when the good news of God's grace for us gets pushed, it opens our heart up to charity, to, to, to loving, to giving to those who, who may not even deserve it, right? When the gospel of grace is connected to the poor and somebody pushes that button, you wake up. You wake up just like Scrooge did. You guys remember the story of Scrooge? At the end, you know, they'd showed him his life. They'd showed him everything. And then at the very end, they showed him his greed. They showed him his doom. They showed him his whole life before he eyes, who, who he was, who he is, who he would have been. And at the end, he sees his own death. And he sees his own, like, friends around him and all these people who've been made miserable because of his greed. And he finally sees his own grave and his own wasted life. And he cries out in horror as he falls into the grave. And he wakes up and he's tangled up in his blankets in his nice warm bed at home. And it's Christmas morning. And the whole world is new again. He was a dead man, now he's alive. He'd lost all his money, now it's all back. He'd ruined those people's lives, and yet they're still here. You remember that story. What happens Christmas morning? What happens? You know, remember how he jumps up in his nightgown and what time is it, right? And he, he goes running out into the street and he's buying, he's like scheming like a little kid. He's still cackling and rubbing his hands together, but it's not to get more money, it's to give it away. 
He's generous. He can't wait to buy gifts for people and to pour out his, his love for people. Why? Because he's got a second chance. He got a second chance at life. Undeserved, not looked for. Though he was dead and was lost, and bam, second chance. Now, a second chance isn't a whole lot of grace because the grace we get in Christ isn't just a second chance, amen? It's a lot more than that. But as a result of that little bit of grace, he looks at his money completely differently. And now he's gleeful, right? Scheming like a little kid. The new Scrooge has been changed by grace. So his attitude towards money is, it's not mine. And the Bible says this, the very same thing. It says, if you've experienced God's grace, you'll have a complete change of heart when it comes to your money. Nowhere do we remember that like Christmas, right? Jesus Christ became the unmatchable giver when the king left his throne and became a poor little baby born in a barn. It says in 2 Corinthians, Christ became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. The second thing, I just want to read this in closing. Um, I'm just trying to push that grace button in your heart today, and I hope this does. This is a, a sermon that woke me up. I love reading old school sermons, and uh, it's from the 1830s in Scotland. A guy named Robert Murray McShane, and he's preaching on the text, it's more blessed to give to receive. And uh, just let me end with this from his sermon. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be made branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must become like him in giving. Though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor. But you object. Hey, my money's my own. Here's the answer. Christ may have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forceth it from me. Where then should we have been? Objection. The poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ may have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels, but no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection. The poor may abuse it. Answer. Christ may have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely, to the vile and to the poor, to the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember Christ's own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Can you feel the spirit of God pushing your grace button today? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we by your power at work in us, by your grace to allow us, that you'd let us become bearers of this great message of your gospel, that Jesus Christ came to preach good news to the poor. And that means, I know, Lord, that only the spiritually poor can receive his salvation. Then receiving that salvation, Christ creates this new community, this countercultural people who love the materially poor. The gospel is good news for the spiritually poor and it's good news for the materially poor. So we pray that you would help us become a church in which that is obvious and evident. We pray this all by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen.